The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. I am excited to walk through this Christmas season with you all. Um, And over this Christmas season, again, we get the opportunity to remember what our Savior, Jesus Christ, has done for us by taking on human flesh for our sake. One of the burdens on my heart is that as a church, we would be well-trained in the Scriptures. Specifically, I have a burden that we would know how to interact with God's Word and that we would have a grasp on the redemptive storyline of His Word from beginning to end. The more we understand of the whole picture, the deeper our affection for Christ will grow and the deeper we will understand the whole counsel of God's Word and what He has revealed to us. This February, we'll actually be holding our next Theology U class, part of our Valley Creek U um, program, which we're, we're calling Understanding the Biblical Timeline. So it'll be four weeks of getting to walk through kind of a high-level view of the major places and names and themes that run throughout the scriptures to help us understand um, the bigger picture. And so I encourage young and old, if you're well-versed in the scriptures or you're a novice to them, to come. It should be an encouraging, uplifting time, getting to just kind of systematically walk through and see what the Lord has done and to better understand the word together. And so as I thought about our Advent series for this December, I thought we could take a similar approach. Look over the next few weeks at some key biblical passages in the Old Testament that set the stage for the coming of Christ. So we're calling this Christmas series, Christ Has Come, The Curse Is Lifted, with this week's message being The Curse and the Promise. I titled this series to have a story-like feel because that's what it is. That is what history is. We don't simply move from random event to random event. Everything that transpires on this earth is an intricate tapestry masterfully woven together by a gracious, glorious, good creator who is over all things. God is a master storyteller. That's why we love stories. Every culture across the globe has stories. We tell stories of our own personal histories. When we get together with family and friends, what do we do? We sit around and we tell stories and we laugh and we remember. We tell stories about our cultures. We tell stories of times long past. We make up stories out of our imagination and we wonder. And in all of these stories, there's often commonalities. We've got heroes and villains. There's paradise and paradise lost. There's sacrifice and valor. There's redemption. There's hope for a happily ever after. These patterns exist because they're echoes of the story that we all live in the midst of. A great dramatic tale that's unfolding over time. But left on our own, we get the big story wrong. We twist it and we distort it. So there's echoes of it, there's themes in every culture across the globe, you read their histories, there's things that echo this this one great true story, but unless we are hearing and receiving it from our God, we'll get it wrong. And so that's why we have to be familiar with the true record of events. 
And thankfully, our God intends for us to know the story. Specifically, He wants us to know the redemptive story that He has been writing. The Bible says that all Scripture is able to make you wise for salvation. The Bible is not just a historical log. It is. There's history there. But the Bible is a well-crafted story revealing the heart and the character of God, showing our plight and unveiling His great rescue mission that He has planned for humanity. There's lessons for us to learn. There's things for us to see about how we ought to live. But that is not the primary basis of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are here to show us Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation that God has worked. So this morning, as a character from another story I like, Maria von Tropp would say, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. So please turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. I had told the team we were reading 14 to 20, uh, 24. I'm actually going to start at the beginning of the chapter. Um, so you won't see the first few verses up on the screen. The verses will pick up in, chap- in verse 14. But we're going to read Genesis 3, verses 1. Um, three, well, actually, we're just going to read chapter 3. I guess it's 1 to 24. So let me pray before we read. Father, oh, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a great storyteller. You, are, um, you have involved us in your story. You have offered to us salvation. I pray this morning that you would quicken our hearts to wonder at who you are, to feel our need for you, and to create anticipation, not only for the celebration of the first coming of Christ, but anticipation for his return. Be with us now as we read and as we consider together your word. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. This is a really tragic passage. I'm sure many of us are familiar with these verses. And this morning, we won't be breaking down every bit of this section. We won't be asking all of the questions that could be asked of it. But what we'll be doing is laying a foundation of our need for Christ. There's a reason this is at the beginning of the Bible, because this is the beginning of our story. Many modern thinkers like to claim that these stories are myths, allegories for spiritual truths. Adam and Eve were not real people. The Garden of Eden was not a real place. God didn't really create the world. This is all just imagery and metaphor. If that's what we think of the beginning pages of Scripture then we won't understand the rest of what God has revealed. We'll never understand ourselves, the entirety of the gospel, the entirety of God's whole story of redemption stands upon these first few pages. There may be poetic structures at play in these chapters, but the scriptures never treat Adam and Eve as merely allegorical figures. They're real They have genealogies. We are told we all descended from them, and the problem that was introduced to the world through them is the problem that we now all face. This is history, and God has given us ample reason for us to believe that this, these scriptures, are the account that we use to judge all other tellings of history. And so we look here at this beginning to give us a sense of our need. And to increase anticipation in our hearts for celebrating the arrival of Christ and what he came to do. So we're going to look at three things together this morning about this dawn of creation that it had a very good beginning, a very dire curse, and a very precious promise. So chapter one of today's message is a very good beginning. In the book of Ezra, which I know some of you are studying together, The exiled people of Israel brought back together and are able to reconstruct the temple of God that Solomon had built. Yet when they laid the foundation, Ezra recounts that amid the shouts of joy, there was also great 
weeping. The weeping was from those among them who had witnessed the first temple. They wept because they saw the difference between the former glory and the diminished state of the present. To feel the full weight of our need, we need to grasp the full splendor of what had been given to us and what has been lost. We live in a majestic world. Unfortunately, because of our sin, we so often, even as believers, we walk around in a haze failing to marvel at God's glorious creation. We were in Florida, as many of you know, and while we were there, my family made a trip to Disney's Animal Kingdom. For all the things that there were to do and see, do you know what delighted our little four-month-old girl the most? A cow. There was this small petting zoo, and they had some goats, and they had some pigs, and then they had this one cow. And this cow was standing there, barely moving, just blinking his eyes, and when Goldie saw this cow, you would have thought she won the lottery. Her face lit up, she was squealing with delight, her legs were kicking, her arms were flapping, she loved that cow. And that's the way it is with little kids. Each and everything they encounter when they're young, is a thing of wonder and delight. They're struck with, with awe. And the reality is, why shouldn't a cow be exciting? It's a really majestic creature. But as we age, we grow familiar with things. We take things for granted, and we're less easy to please. But our exposure to creation should not rob us of the wonder of it. I very distinctly remember one day in college, I was walking to class, I remember looking up, and for the first time, I was really struck. I was struck by the sky in a way I never had been before. It was beautiful, deep blue, puffy clouds. I, of course, had seen these things thousands of times before, but something about it that day inspired a wonder I hadn't felt. A wonder at its reality and a wonder at the God who made it. Genesis 1 and 2 should make us wonder. We get a picture of a good and powerful God who uses his infinite power and creative energies to construct a wonderful creation. A creation full of sights and sounds and colors and textures, full of animals and plants and creeping things. A world where you can take a tiny seed and put it in this brown stuff and a giant tree comes out of it. A world where an act of love between two individuals creates a new human being. This is phenomenal. And that's the world that we live in. And if we have eyes to see it, we can see so much of that around us. God says in the book of Romans that his divine nature is clearly perceived in all that is made so that we are without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God. If we want proof that God exists, we need look no further than outside our window. But as majestic as this creation is, as wonderful as it can be, it's a shadow of its original splendor. I'm fascinated by abandoned structures. Old ships, old buildings, I like pictures of them and people who go and take walk-arounds of them. There's something fascinating about seeing these once splendid creations slowly fading and degrading. That's the world that we live in. 
It is glorious, it is majestic, but it is decaying. And if we could see what it started out as, I'm sure we would be blown away. For as much beauty and wonder as there is in this world, there's also so much brokenness. And we're so used to the brokenness that we struggle to imagine just how glorious the original design truly was. What we know from Genesis 1 and 2, what we know from the scriptures is that the world that God originally made, what he intended for us to experience was untarnished by anything foul. At the end of each day of creation, God declares, and it was good. God makes light and darkness, the sky, the land, the sea, all manners of things to fill them. And then he made man and woman in his image that he might pour out his love and affection on them, that they might be his beloved special creation to lovingly rule over the place that he had created. In verse 28 of chapter 1, it says, and God blessed them. And he charged them to be, multi- to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God created this earth as a home for his people made in his image. And in this creation, in chapter 2, we see that God made a garden, a special corner of this vast creation that marked his divine presence ever with them. We see in chapter 2 that God would walk among them in this garden. We hear of that in chapter 3 here. God would speak with them. Mankind had unhindered access to God and the joy that he gives. So joyful was this creation that when God created Eve out of Adam and unites them in the first marriage, we see Adam overcome with delight and break out into song. Unlike our current experience, Adam and Eve lived in perfect harmony with God. And because of that, they were in perfect harmony With one another. Every thought, every action, every deed, in perfect accord with and in submission to God. They had no evil thought, they had no anxious dread, they had no worry, no fear, no panic, none of these things ever needed to enter their minds. They had all that they needed. They were naked and unashamed before each other and before their God. The world around them worked in perfect harmony, all of it. No disease, no disruption, no decay. It was truly paradise. They lived in the very presence of God. And they had the honor of caring for and enjoying this glorious creation that God had made. There's a lot of wonder left in our world, but it does pale in comparison to what it was meant to be, to what life in the garden was meant to be like. It was a very good beginning. But the very good beginning took a very quick turn. So we move to the very dire curse. In the garden, there were two special trees, we are told, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Out of all this glorious creation that God had made, the only prohibition that he gave to his created people was that they would not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This was not to withhold anything good from them, but it was to remind them of their need to trust in Him. In chapter 2 of Genesis, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve had been given this good garden, an untarnished creation, and the one stipulation was that they must not eat of that tree. It's like a person saying, I will give you enough money to not only take care of you for the rest of your life, but enough that you'll live like a king. And then they set a single dollar bill on the nightstand next to you and they say, the only thing you have to do to keep this, don't spend that dollar. (laughs) That's what it was. It seems utterly absurd that anyone would touch that dollar. But that's what sinful desire does. We know Adam and Eve touched the dollar. We see in our passage this morning, along came a serpent. To Adam and Eve and the early writers of Scripture, it's unclear what was revealed to them about this serpent. Yet as God continued to unfold the Scriptures over time, we can now clearly see who was behind this slithery manifestation, the father of lies, Satan himself. And what he came to do was to tempt Adam and Eve to think that there was a good reason to grab the dollar, to take a bite, to eat the fruit. And he does this by planting a seed of doubt in their minds, a doubt that God did not truly have their best at heart. He says to Eve, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the ultimate crafty deceit, full of half-truths. Notice, the serpent never tells her to eat the fruit. He begins the exchange and he says, did God really say to you? He's getting her to think about the tree and then to think about God's intentions. He's getting her to doubt God. He says, you will not surely die. In a way, he's speaking the truth. Adam and Eve did not immediately die, but that's not what God had meant. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him in your knowledge. In a way, he's speaking the truth. There is a knowledge God was withholding from Adam and Eve, but it wasn't a knowledge that they were ever intended to have. It wasn't a knowledge that would increase their joy, but instead it was a knowledge that they couldn't handle and would lead to their destruction. Yet Eve buys into it. She's tempted, and we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. One fatal bite. What's the issue here? Is it that this tree really was awful to eat from? Was it a diseased tree? Was it poisonous? No, there was nothing, I don't think, about the tree itself that was awful. It's what it represented. Adam and Eve believed the lie that God was not sufficient. John Piper says about this, by eating the fruit, they said, I'm smarter than you. I'm more authoritative than you. I'm wiser than you are. I think I can care for myself better than you care for me. You're not a very good father, and so I'm going to reject you. That's what that bite meant. There's a lot packed into it. 
And this is the great lie that we have all been tempted to believe ourselves. And it is a lie. God is the greatest thing that exists. And we know that God withholds no good thing from those who trust him. God is the source of all pleasure. God is the source of all knowledge and wisdom. God was not keeping pleasure from Adam and Eve. He was shielding them from pain. In verse 7 we read, then the eyes of both were opened. It did happen, just like the serpent had said. But like any con man, the truth was twisted. Was it power and joy and life that they found when their eyes were opened? No. Their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. They were ashamed. The peaceful world full of color and beauty in one instant now had shades of gray enter in and a sense of dread settle in. God did not want Adam and Eve to be ignorant. That's not what's going on here, but he wanted them to be innocent to evil. At present, we have a head knowledge of a world without sin. But we cannot fathom it in experience. I, I cannot fathom what that will be like to never sin. Then Adam and Eve had a head knowledge of sin. God told them not to do something after all. So they could conceive in theory of disobedience, of not doing what God had said. But they could not grasp the reality of it. Just like we can't imagine what it'll be like to be without sin... They did not have an actual understanding of what it would be like to be in sin. And God did not want them to grasp that reality. They were not designed to. God and the heavenly beings we read in verse 22 had a way of knowing this without having committed sin themselves. But that was not our design and that was for our good. But instead of trusting that, Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. And the sin that promised something greater than what they had been given pulled the proverbial rug out from underneath of them. Now instead of being blessed, they were being condemned. And much of this condemnation was simply God handing them over to their own godless wisdom that they now had earned doing what was right in their own eyes rather than doing what God had commanded. And so we see this curse play out. And it's not just Adam and Eve who felt it, but it's the entirety of creation. In verse 14, we read that the animals on the earth would be cursed with the greatest sentence being given to the serpent himself. His movements now would forever be a symbol of disgrace the lowest of all the creatures in humility licking up the dust on the earth, a symbol of the curse that had come. In verse 18, we read of thorns and thistles that would arise, elements in nature that would cause pain and cause frustration. The once perfect creation was now marred, and we know as the scriptures and our experience make clear, the brokenness extends beyond just these few things mentioned here. Entropy entered the world. Decay. We're so used to rust and decay. We're so used to old age and wrinkles. But there's 
absolutely nothing that says that's the way matter has to behave. Things in theory could last forever, yet the existence we find ourselves in is one that wears out. Things get weak. Things encounter disease. From the beginning, this was not so. When we look in the mirror and we see wrinkles of time marking our face, it's because of the curse that is now on this earth. It's a result of our fall into sin. And it's honestly a gracious reminder to us as we age of what is coming if we don't trust in Christ. Just as there are markers all around us of God's glory and his creative hand and beauty, there are markers all around us reminding us of the sin that we allowed to enter into this world. Now, rather than peace on this earth, there would be strife. In verse 15, where it speaks of enmity between the woman and the serpent, there certainly is a statement here of the tension now between not just snake and human, but between the beasts of the field and mankind. But again, God's further revelation makes clear to us this is also about something bigger than that. The serpent was a tool for Satan himself, and our world now, post-curse, is a battlefield. Peace is not the norm, but war, good and evil in opposition. This is our world now. It's paradise lost. God then turns to Adam and Eve, and we get a taste of what lies ahead for all of humanity. Eve is told that the two things that were meant to be a great joy for her, giving life to children and marriage, would now be vehicles of pain. Labor would hurt, children could die, infertility was possible, raising children would be hard, they would fight, they would rebel, they would cause pain as little sinners. So too would there be pain in the relationship between husband and wife. There are controversies around these verses, especially in our modern dialogue, and I'm not going to dive into those now, but I'll say this. God's original good design for marriage, as clearly seen from the scriptures, is that man and woman would be joined together to magnify God and display his great love. The husband was to take primary responsibility to ensure the spiritual and physical well-being of his family, and the wife was to love and care for her family and follow her husband's leadership. What we see in this passage is a disruption in that beautiful marriage economy that God created. Husband and wife would no longer naturally be at peace with one another, but the natural tendency would be to be at war with each other, each doing harm to the other. Where relationships were nothing but peace and joy prior to the fall with perfect trust between two individuals, now the heart's default position would be skepticism, distrust, hatred, enmity, strife, discord, jealousy, and so on. We all feel it. Gone is peace. God then moves to Adam in verse 18. He rebukes him for failing in his spiritual leadership, and he describes now the hard, arduous labor that he would face and the death that he would endure. In the garden, Adam would have worked, but it was a joyful labor, not stressful, not taxing, not frustrating. God had cultivated the soil and made it fertile. God prepared the way, making Adam's work an utter joy. Outside of the garden, away from God's presence, 
the soil would fight him. He would face drought and thorns and thistles. Crops would be diseased. Bugs would swarm. The sun would fry. Rather than the default being life, the default now would be hard work to maintain life. But above all of these things, the greatest loss to Adam and Eve, to all of us, was that they now had to be cast out of God's presence. Eden, that beautiful garden, was where God freely dwelt with man, where the tree of life existed, where the center of all things was right ordering with God, where where God protected from corruption and futility. That Eden now must be off limits to Adam and Eve. They were meant to care for and protect God's creation, but when They had now become the very disease that God would not allow to exist in the garden. They were the problem they were supposed to be defending the garden of. They could no longer eat from the tree of life and live forever with God, but they were set outside to watch their bodies waste away and dissolve back to dust. Cherubim were placed at the gates of the garden. Adam and Eve were clothed, showing they now needed a covering before God, and they were sent away. We don't know what happened to the physical garden. Did God eventually remove it from the earth? Was it destroyed in the great flood? We don't know, but what we do know is that no human being was ever permitted back in. Imagine the total devastation, guilt, And regret Adam and Eve must have felt. To have tasted and to have seen perfection and then to be subject to futility. It must have been unbearable. Imagine the strain it must have placed on the two of them. We get on each other for forgetting to lock the front door. Imagine the tension you cause when you've created the destruction of the world. And this is what they did. Our world is broken. There's nothing normal about death. There's nothing normal or beautiful about disease or the ravages of time. There's nothing normal about accidents and pain and heartache. There's nothing normal about ill will and strife. We shouldn't have to lock our front doors or have passcodes for accounts. We shouldn't need bike helmets or first aid kits. We shouldn't feel an absence between us and the glorious God of the universe. Yet all of these things feel normal because they're what we experience. But they are in fact intruders into what was meant to be a perfect world. God has given us and this world over to the consequences of our sin. We live in a world so full of beauty yet with a lingering curse, a very real curse. Many of you likely sit here today and you're very aware of that curse, whether it's health issues or financial struggles or relational woes, you feel the pain, you see the darkness, and it's good for us to be aware of our great need. But know this, God does not end the story there. The story of humanity and our personal stories does not have to end in tragedy. And we see even here at the beginning in the midst of handing down this curse that God delivers a very precious promise. 
God could have and would have been perfectly justified to put Adam and Eve to death right then and there to make a full end of it all. Yet though spiritually they had died, they were cast out of God's presence, God didn't immediately destroy the entirety of his creation because he had a plan that he was setting in motion. A plan that he had purposed from the beginning of time, knowing full well what Adam and Eve were going to do. God must punish sin. God must deal with this rebellious creation. But before bringing a full end to it all, he had plans to create a wonderfully new beginning. And we see that here in what is often called the Proto-Evangelium in verse 15. And speaking of the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. For Adam and Eve, and many along the way, again, this statement was shrouded in mystery. It seems, again, they weren't yet aware of the personhood of Satan himself, that he was the one manifesting through this serpent. For all they knew, this was simply some rogue serpent endowed by God with the ability to speak who stood as a tempter of evil and a symbol for the evil that would now be waging war against them. But what we know from further revelation, again, is that this serpent represents not just evil, but the workings of Satan and Satan himself. Adam and Eve were meant to lovingly rule, as we've said, under God's charge over creation, yet instead they handed the reins of the workings over to the powers of darkness. Satan is called the prince of the powers of the air. Yet even here at the very beginning, we get this promise. A promise that one would come from Eve who would take on this great serpent. We read of a descendant of Eve who would be bruised on his heel, but in the process would bruise the head of the serpent. A heel bruise is an injury. A head blow is a defeat. And so from the first pages of Scripture, the hunt was on for who this promised offspring would be. That's why all the genealogies, they're tracking, they're following, they're wondering, they're looking for this promise fulfilled. Who would stomp on the head of evil? Eve wonders if it's her first son, Cain. Clearly that turned out not to be so. Then she bears Seth. From Seth, we get what seems to be a godly line developing. We see godly men like Enoch in the line. Then we hit Noah. It's clear Noah's father wondered if Noah was this offspring to come. Noah's father says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. But Noah falters. It progresses. Could it be Abraham? Could it be Joseph? Could it be Moses? But like any good story, as painful as it is to stop here, we're going to leave it with a cliffhanger. So we've got a few more weeks ahead. Our Advent series is designed to stir a sense of longing in our hearts. Adam and Eve only had a vague hope that somehow evil was going to be defeated. And that's where we're going to pause today.
Next week, we'll move from the curse and the promise. We'll be jumping ahead to the book of 2 Samuel, and we'll see the promise and the king, where we'll start to get some more clarity of this offspring of Eve, the promised one, and just what it is that he was going to come to do. But for this week, it suffice to say, a very good promise has been made. There is hope for a broken world. We live in that broken world, but we serve an eternally merciful and patient God. Adam and Eve had it all, yet they gave it up in their sin. They gained nothing and they lost everything. We all have done the same daily in our sins. But God, being rich in mercy, enacted a plan. If you're here with us this morning and you do not believe in God or you don't know his son, Jesus Christ, who, spoiler alert, is the great redeemer that we're remembering this Christmas season and working towards in our sermon series, we're eager to help you come to know him. He has offered us a hope in the midst of the darkness. And that's what we're remembering at Christmas. That's why we have lights. They shine in the darkness, right? Stick with us the next few weeks and learn more about the great story of the world the great redemption that's offered through Christ and the cure for the curse. Church, as we go, let's marvel at God's mercy, let's mourn at our broken world, and let's together anticipate celebrating the first coming and eagerly await the second coming of this promised Savior. Pray with me if you would. Father, we we confess our sin before you. Lord, you created a glorious world for us to enjoy. Yet you gave us the ability to trust you or not. And we have not trusted you. Father, we all feel the effects of that sin. We all, in our own ways, engage in that sin each and every day. Father, but we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the fact that you remind us of our need and that you have promised to take care of it. Lord, thank you that from the beginning days of creation, you gave a promise that you would deal with the curse, that you would crush the head of the serpent. Father God, thank you that we have a hope. Help us to rejoice in our great Savior. We pray all of this In his name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.